I have a question for you today. How did we get to where we are? How did we get to where we are in terms of the institutional church setting that we see around us? How did this happen? Was it by accident? Was it on purpose? We think of top-down authority. We think of conformity to the rules. We think of a system that doesn't talk about the finished work of Christ very much or very often, but would rather talk about things that guilt us into doing more for the institution, to perpetuate the institution. We look at top-down authority that's all around us and this culture within institutional Christianity of authority that can't be questioned. How did we get here? Let's talk about it right now. You're listening to The Unsunday Show. Leaving behind religious obligation to find a more authentic expression of Christ in us, this is The Unsunday Show. Hello, friends. Mikey Adams here with The Unsunday Show. In this episode, I want to go back and talk about the origin of some of the things that we see within modern institutional church. Because, you know, where did this stuff come from? How did we get to where we're at? Is this whole system of conformity and unquestionable authority legitimate? Is it something that God has created for the body of Christ? Is it something that is inherent in the body of Christ? And if not, where did it come from? How did we get here? I think one thing most of us will agree on is that the modern institutional church or modern institutional religion, however you want to phrase it, is in fact a system of conformity and complete authority that can't be questioned. If you start to question it, there's going to be certain punishments for your rebellion, your questioning the whole system in the first place, is going to be called into question. But how did, how did this happen? How did we get here? Now, if you've been following the On Sunday show for any length of time, you know that I've talked about this here and there in different episodes, but I wanted to consolidate it. I want to bring it up again, and I want to approach this topic again because, quite frankly, I've got a lot of new listeners. There's a lot of new people jumping into the On Sunday show. I look at the stats and I can see how they're increasing. And so part of my reason, I guess, is to have it all in one episode, in one podcast episode here on the On Sunday show, as well as be able to introduce those who maybe haven't heard it to the ideas that I want to present. Well, we didn't get to where we are today in institutional Christianity by accident. We got here very intentionally. Any casual reading of church history is going to reveal that, and in this episode, I want to talk about a few of those things. You'll remember that in this podcast, we've talked about a guy named Ignatius of Antioch a number of times. Ignatius lived right at the beginning of the second century, and he's the one that first really introduced, or at least put it down on paper, or whatever they were writing on, the whole idea of the pastor or the bishop, bishop-pastor being the same thing in the New Testament, that the bishop or the pastor was the one solely responsible for everything within the body of Christ. In fact, that the body of Christ wasn't to do anything. It wasn't even to assemble unless the bishop or the pastor was present. 
And then he suggested that once the bishop or the pastor was present, that that person would always be the one to kind of run the show, as it were. He was the only one who could baptize new converts. He was the only one who could serve the Lord's Supper, which by that time had started to become institutionalized and had moved from a celebration meal to a sacrament, but not just a sacrament, a religious sacrament. And Ignatius insisted that in order to curb some of the division that was going on that he saw within the body of Christ, that he wanted to clamp down on the people by putting more authoritative leadership in place, leadership that wasn't there, or authoritative leadership, I should say, that wasn't there prior to his suggestion. Now, that was in the early second century, but his thoughts caught on, didn't they? There was a guy also in the early second century named Clement of Rome. Both Clement of Rome and another guy named Tertullian, who lived about 160 AD to 220 AD, these dates are approximate, so just to give you a frame of reference, both Clement of Rome and Tertullian were the first really to popularize the clergy-laity language, the clergy-laity distinction, that there's a professional clergy, there's professional Christians who are leading this thing and who are running the show, i.e. the bishops or the pastors, and then there was the lowly laity who didn't really understand anything, that didn't have the special calling and the special authority that the supposed clergy had. Both Clement of Rome and Tertullian popularized that clergy-laity language. And certainly, by 250 AD, the bishop had become a fixed office with sole authority within the assembly. Every assembly, every church, had its own bishop, and that bishop had full authority within the assembly. And that system is still with us in varying degrees today. And that's what we see when we walk into most institutional church settings is you've got the one man or the one woman in authority, in a position of authority, and they are the chief person of that assembly, of that church. And really, what that person decides to do or not do is how the whole church kind of steers. Well, this isn't something that came to us from Scripture or something that came to us from the Holy Spirit. This is something that came to us through church history. This is religious tradition that has perpetuated itself over the centuries. Let me introduce you to another guy, Cyprian of Carthage, who lived about 200 AD to 258. Again, these dates are approximate. Cyprian of Carthage believed that, now listen to this, this is crazy. He believed that the bishop was a divinely appointed mediator between God and mankind. He's one who introduced Old Covenant trappings back into the New Covenant ecclesia, the New Covenant body of Christ, the New Covenant assembly. Things like altars, temples, priests, holy days, holy places, etc., were introduced by him. And because of his influence, bishops or pastors began to be called priests. And collectively, priests, bishops, and elders together were called the clergy. Cyprian also believed that the bishop was accountable to no one but God, and he viewed the bishop as the sole high priest who could forgive sins. All of this, all of this stuff, all of this structure was firmly in place by the mid-third century. That's when we see in church history a move from ecclesia to organized church, to organized religion, to organized institutional Christianity. 
And that system is still with us today. In fact, it's all around us. That's what we see. We see the pastor or the executive pastor or the executive team and the, uh, you know, the one, it all comes down to one person. I mean, there might be a, a, a team of pastors or a team of leaders within a particular institutional church, but somebody's got to be in charge. Somebody has to be the, the person where the buck stops. Somebody has to be the one to say yes or no. Part of that is because it is a legal corporation, and a legal corporation needs a CEO. Well, we call the CEO by different names. We'll call the CEO senior pastor, executive pastor, lead pastor, you know, something like that. But that person has to be there in order to have a legal nonprofit corporation, at least in the United States. And so that's what we see all around us. And the whole idea of a nonprofit is really kind of funny too. But that's a topic for a different podcast episode, I suppose. But my point is that what we see around us today isn't binding on us. It's something that was added in church history. And get this, the whole idea of the pastor being the sole authority within the assembly was instituted by pastors, and it was perpetuated by pastors. And I, you know, I see a lot of people who want to sort of fix this system, but let's be honest for a minute. I don't think that that system wants to be fixed. I think it likes what it is. It likes the power that it has, the control that it has. It likes to be able to use guilt in different ways to guilt people to do more to perpetuate the institution. I don't think it can be fixed. I think it needs to be jettisoned and we need to start over. We need to start over with Christ alone. We need to start over. You know, think about this. If we could go back in time, to when we first believed, let's say, and we were never introduced to things like institutional religion, institutional Christianity. We just knew Jesus. We had Jesus. What would that look like? What would it be like if we could somehow erase from our experiences and erase from our memories the idea of institutional church? We would still be spending time with believers because that's what we would love to be doing, but it wouldn't reside in this culture of unquestionable authority and of top-down authority where the whole role of you and I as those in the pew or in the chair is to submit to everything that one person thinks ultimately. I've been in that system. I've been a pastor in that, in that system, and I've seen what goes on behind closed doors, and there's times when it's just not pretty. And there's times when there's a power struggle going on. And there's times where those who disagree are called names like heretic simply because they disagree. Did you know the word heresy just simply means to have an opinion? You know, to be a heretic means you've got an opinion. So I guess that makes pretty much all of us that live and have opinions, you know, a heretic on some level. But it becomes a heresy, it becomes name-calling when you disagree with the system, the structure that's in place that can't be questioned. Do you remember several episodes ago, maybe like two years ago, or maybe longer than that, in our discussion about Constantine, and I talked about how, you know, prior to the New Testament, prior to the cross, you know, Rome was in place. Rome, of course, was the world power, and you had one leader. You had Caesar, who was one leader and couldn't be questioned. And we call that a sacral system. Is a sacral system because there was one person at the top, and if you questioned that person's authority or that person's procedures that he required you to do, i.e., you stop paying taxes, you know, or something like that, you would be punished up to and including death. 
because in a sacral system, there wasn't room for disagreement. And if you disagreed with something, if you had a different opinion, you had to really keep that to yourself. You didn't want to express that unless you wanted trouble, because trouble would come because, you know, Caesar and the government in that sacral society had the sword, and they would come down on you hard if you didn't comply, if you didn't conform to the rules. Well, fast forward then to the mid-4th century, and, you know, we're talking about the emperor, the Roman emperor Constantine, who Christianized everything. You know, there's another little rabbit trail we could go down. Why do we Christianize everything? But he Christianized everything. He Christianized that sacral system, that sacral society. And in doing so, he not only made it legal to be a Christian by that by the definition that Rome had, but it was also required by law. You had to conform to it. Hence, infant baptism. Hence, adult baptism. Those who hadn't been baptized, who weren't believers at all, were forced to be baptized, and their children had to be baptized. Why? Because that was a sign that you were committed to the sacral system. And in Constantine's case, it became a Christian sacral system, but it still demanded complete obedience. And everyone living in a geographical area that was controlled by the Roman emperor was required to comply. And if you didn't comply, there were punishments in place. And in a sacral system like that, if you didn't comply, you were called a heretic because you had a different opinion. Now, obviously, you know, some opinions can be really bad. I'm not saying that that's not true. But to just have a different opinion and to not want to conform to the Christian sacral system meant that you were a heretic, you were, you were experiencing heresy, or you were teaching heresy, and heresy meaning you just had your own opinion, you had your own thoughts, because that was such a harsh system of compliance and unquestioned authority that you really didn't want to speak up unless you were ready to face the consequences. Now let's transfer that setting, that Christian sacral setting, into kind of a a microcosm of what we've got today. We don't have, at least not here, not where I live, we don't have, you know, state-run churches anymore where everyone in a geographic location is considered to be part of the church, part of that Christian sacral system, but we have many sacral systems. And I don't mean many as in lots, I mean many as in M-I-N-I, many small. We have these tiny sacral systems, and if you join yourself to one, you're required to conform. That's the model that's been in church history since way back when. You're required to conform to whatever that Christian sacral system that you're in requires you to conform to. We call those uh, sacral, those Christian sacral systems today, denominations or organizations that you know, kind of umbrella organizations over different ecclesiastical uh, models, different ecclesiastical organizations. Or perhaps it's just a church that's out there by itself that's accountable to no one. And somewhere in that church, there's a lead pastor or an executive pastor who's making all the decisions. And if you don't conform to those decisions, to those ideas, you're going to get punished. And that punishment, you know, if it runs its full course, will result in church discipline, which I, you know, I did a couple episodes a while back. You might want to go listen to those on church discipline because I'm still working through that, but I'm not sure that that's a new covenant concept. I don't see it anywhere, you know, from 
Romans on or even in Acts, I don't see that happening. It's like it was a Jewish thing for those people at the time prior to the cross. But, you know, I'm still working through that. But you might want to go listen to those episodes. I think there's two of them uh, back there somewhere in the uh, analogs of the Unsunday show. But my point is this, that this whole clergy lady thing, this whole professional Christian versus lady, clergy lady distinction, which is a false dichotomy, it's a false distinction. It's not in Scripture anywhere. In fact, just the opposite is in Scripture. You know, Scripture uses the word clergy, the Greek word kleros, as uh, referencing the entire body of Christ, as the body of Christ being an inheritance, that the body of Christ is, as a whole, referred to as kleros or the clergy, not a certain group within the body of Christ that somehow have a special calling, which they don't or that somehow have special insight, which they don't, or somehow have special authority over you, which they don't. But rather, kleros, or clergy, refers to the entire body of Christ. And I know I've talked about that a bunch in here. So if you again, if you've been on the Unsunday show for any length of time, that's not going to surprise you. But when we come to the word laity, the word laity isn't even in the New Testament. Did you know that? The word laity isn't there. Now, a closely related word is laos. The Greek word laos means people. But again, laos is referring to the entire body of Christ when it's used in that context. It's not referring to a subset of people who are kind of ignorant and don't know what's going on and are relying on the one pastor system to tell them what to believe. That doesn't exist. What does exist is Christ in you. What does exist is the Holy Spirit residing in every believer, and he has qualified you by his mere presence, to be a functioning part of the body of Christ. But let's take our analogy a little bit further. You know, we've talked about some early people within church history, but let's, let's fast forward a little bit to the time of the Reformation. And specifically, I want to talk for just a, mo- just a moment about Martin Luther at the time of the Reformation. You know, concerning the clergy-laity distinction in the church that, you know, had started way back when, Luther, not unlike Ignatius, held a view that only the specially trained, ordained ministers were qualified to preach, to baptize, and to do the Lord's Supper, which again had been institutionalized. He felt, that is Luther, Luther felt that to veer from this and allow the unordained laity, I'm using air quotes, to allow the unordained laity to do those things would result in a, quote, perversion of public order end of quote. And to add to that, he also believed that it would result in, quote, undermining respect for authority, end of quote. He said that it would lead to what he called deplorable confusion. And again, that's referenced in a book called The Theology of Martin Luther by Paul Altheus, published by Fortress Press in 1966. And that information is on page 323 of that book. The same mindset that Luther proposed or that Luther perpetuated there is still all around us today. It's interesting that the Anabaptists of Luther's day believed that it was crucial to have every member functioning in the body of Christ, and anyone should be allowed to speak publicly when the church or the body of Christ was gathered together, as opposed to the one-man professional clergy that was was going on even in that day. 
But Luther was so opposed to the idea of someone other than the professional clergy speaking in the church's meetings that he referred to it as coming from, quote, the pit of hell, end of quote. And that those who were guilty of doing such practices, of speaking up within the assembly when the, when the body of Christ is gathered together, that those who were guilty of doing that should be put to death. You know, sometimes we're quick to quote people like Luther or Calvin or others, and, you know, these guys did say some really good things, but they also had their blind spots, just like I do, and just like you do. And so be careful who you espouse, because in a lot of cases, there's somewhat of a dark side to the person as well. I know I have my blind spots. I don't know what they are. That's why they're called blind spots, I guess. If I could see them and I knew what they were, I guess they'd be sight spots. But they're blind spots because, you know, I don't know that they're there yet, but give me some time. The Lord will probably reveal those to me that he tends to do that over a period of time. You know, there's things that I've said early on in this podcast and that I used to write back when I uh, blogged a lot and wrote a lot of articles that I would reword today or that I wouldn't say altogether because that's part of, you know, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus is, you know, you, you see things different as time moves on. I know I have my blind spots, just like everyone else does. But so do these guys that sometimes were so quick to quote and to, you know, kind of get on their bandwagon and promote what they said without really thinking it through. Martin Luther also said this concerning pastors and the clergy laity distinction. He said, It is a wonderful thing that the mouth of every pastor is the mouth of Christ. Therefore, you ought to listen to the pastor not as a man, but as God. He went on to add, the ears are the only organs of a Christian. In other words, the laity's role in all of this, the laity's job, if you will, is to listen and obey and conform. Because after all, Martin Luther so elevated the pastor that the pastor became synonymous with God himself. The pastor is the mouth of Christ. Those are Martin Luther's words, not mine. Therefore, you ought to listen to the pastor not as a man, but as God. Again, not my words, his. John Calvin added this concerning the clergy-laity distinction and the, the pastor being the central figure within the assembly. He said, The pastoral office is necessary to preserve the church on earth in a greater way then the sun, food, and drink are necessary to nourish and sustain the present life. Let me read that again. Again, this is John Calvin. He said, The pastoral office is necessary to preserve the church on earth in a greater way than the sun, food, and drink are necessary to nourish and sustain the present life. That's from Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. But here's a shocker. I agree with him. The pastoral office is necessary to preserve the church on earth. But the body of Christ isn't the church. Those are two different things. One's a religious institution. The institutional church relies on the pastoral office to preserve it. And so he's right. The pastoral office is necessary to preserve that system. It's absolutely necessary to preserve that system. But we're not about preserving that system. You know, in past episodes, I, you know, I talked about that sci-fi book. I think I call it The Dome, but it was actually Under the Dome. 
Well, that invisible, you know, dome was dropped down over this town and nobody knew it was there until they tried to leave or, you know, they would run into it, but people couldn't get in it and people couldn't get out of it. But it was, it was transparent, kind of a weird storyline, but it was, you know, the, the book was a lot better than the, than the uh, television series. But, you know, it's kind of the same thing. This invisible dome of religion, of institutional Christianity has been lowered over the body of Christ. And in order to preserve it, the pastoral office is absolutely necessary. But when the you know, pastor become an office, did you know this? I'm kind of getting on a roll here. Did you know this, that the word, the noun pastor, when it's referring to the body of Christ, is only used one time in the New Testament, in Ephesians 4. I think like verse 13, maybe. I don't have it in front of me. I'm going by memory. But Ephesians 4. The pastor is talked about as a gift to the body of Christ one time. We took it, we meaning those in church history, and we professionalized it. We made it more than it is. We made it something it shouldn't be. And we've done that in a number of ways, and probably one of the main ways is by insisting that there's a clergy-laity distinction when no distinction exists within Scripture. It's not there. It's make-believe. It's made up. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to each of us as He wills in order for the body of Christ to function and build itself up in love. Not so that we can listen to one person's opinion once a week and then have to conform to it or go to a small group later in the week and listen to it again as we hash over the sermon, which the sermon itself isn't something that we find in the ecclesia in the New Testament. It came about later on in church history as well. So maybe we can touch that in another episode. Again, I'm just kind of talking here. I don't have anything scripted. I've got a couple little notes in front of me about some of these quotes that I wanted to bring up to you, but I don't have anything scripted. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not, you know, trying to, I'm just trying to have a, a casual conversation with you. I know it's a one-sided conversation, but hey, you're welcome to reach out to me anytime at unsunday.com. But we're so accustomed to the professional pastor and the clergy laity system, and that distinction is so deeply rooted in our tradition and our spiritual heritage, that really we shouldn't, we shouldn't be amazed, or we shouldn't be surprised, rather, that talking about it stirs up so much, so much anger and suspicion by those who promote it. Because again, then the name-calling is going to start. You're going to be labeled a heretic, which means you have a different opinion. And so it gets back to the whole sacral Christian sacral system, doesn't it? And yeah, it's on a kind of a micro scale, mini scale, but it's there. And as soon as you sign that formal membership contract, which it is a contract, it's a legal binding contract, as soon as you sign that, you're expected to conform to that system. And if you don't, suspicion arises, and if you continue to be a problem, you're going to be called names and you're going to be kicked out. That's how it is. That's how sacral systems operate. And that shouldn't surprise us because it's been that way through the history of humanity, as far as I know. So I guess it shouldn't surprise us that those who promote it, those who are a part of it, those who are you know, deeply steeped in it, uh, get angry at some point and get suspicious of us and, you know, take action against us. Because really, when it comes down to it, we're messing with a sacred cow here, aren't we? 
This is a sacred religious cow that we're messing with, and it's going to upset. It's going to upset the cart at some point. And those most deeply immersed in that system have the most to lose because it's tied to their income. Now that's a scary and a vulnerable place to find oneself in. But I believe that the church has a choice to make. If there's anything church history and tradition can teach us regarding the clergy laity system, the top-down authority, and the, and the, uh, the authority of pastors and the centrality of pastors, it's that the entire structure is built upon power and money. And I've said this before, in that system, money flows up and power flows down. And those in power are the beneficiary. It's my opinion that this entire system, you know, the clergy lady system, the top-down authority, you know, pastors in charge, putting pastors on a pedestal, literally, you know, that this whole system needs to be dismantled. It can't be fixed. It doesn't want to be fixed. It's been there. It's been entrenched for over 2,000 years. It likes itself, in my opinion, especially when you get the wrong person in charge. It really likes itself. Because you get a narcissistic leader in there and and you're just opening things up for abuse in that system. I don't think that system can be fixed. I don't think it wants to be fixed. And you can't fix someone or something that doesn't want fixed. I think if we take the New Testament at face value, that that whole system needs to be dismantled. But I also believe that that's not going to happen. And I think that one of the reasons that that's not going to happen is financial. We've got a lot invested here, don't we? We've got campuses, we've got salaries to pay, we've got insurance to pay, we've got mortgages, we've got utilities, and the list goes on and on and on. You know, we've got some investment here, and someone in that system signed the papers to get the loan to create that system. And so there's a lot tied to it here. And I mentioned a minute ago about, you know, salaries, and I certainly empathize with that. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be mean about that. But I think Upton Sinclair hit the nail on the head when he said this, quote, It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. End of quote. And I think Upton Sinclair, when he wrote that or said that, that he, he nailed it right there. It's really difficult to get someone to understand something when their salary depends upon their not understanding it. And I think that's where we are today in, you know, modern evangelical uh, Christianity, institutionalized Christianity. I think that's right where we are today. And that's why I think that we can't fix it. We need to jettison it and we need to start over. And I mean, there is so much more that could be said about this. And again, I'm just rambling on, but man, you know, there is so much more that could be said. So on future episodes, let's circle back around and let's add some layers to this and see where it takes us. Does that sound good to you? I want to thank you for following the Unsunday show. I look at stats and I know that there's a lot of new listeners out there and I really appreciate that. I did start an Instagram page for the Unsunday show. I'll have a link to that below. I'm also on TikTok. I haven't done a lot with it lately uh, just because other things are keeping me out of there. But I do plan on turning that thing back up here soon and starting up some more stuff with it. So if you're interested, I'm there on TikTok. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter as well. I'll have that link in the description below. And you can always find me at unsunday.com. 
And once you're there, there are links to everything that I'm on, like Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. It's all there. It's all right there. So that's a good one-stop shop, unsunday.com, if you want to just stop by there and see what's going on with the Unsunday show. So again, thank you for listening to this episode. And until next time, y'all take care. Thank you for joining us on the Unsunday Show. To be a part of this ongoing conversation, visit us online at unsunday.com.